day, everyone. It's a beautiful day in the PsyQ community. Welcome to PsyQ Podcast. You are here with your podcast hosts, Dr. Zamika Simmons-Yan and Jackie Canning, where we will spill the tea on hot topics in psychiatry. That's right. Here on PsyQ Podcast, you will get the 10-minute lowdown on what's steaming in the world of psychiatry and mental health. We ask you to listen to the episodes, rate us, and review us. Better yet, share the Psyche Podcast with your friends, where we all can sip on the Psyche tea, and maybe have a side of lemon with it. I hope the Psyche community is filled with excitement, because we have a lot of tea to spill. You know, actually, I have a fresh squeeze of lemon today, because I am graced with the presence of my beautiful colleague, Annetta Fornal, who is a senior medical science liaison in Florida. I'm so ecstatic that she decided to pop in and get the tea because it's going to really have our ears perked. Hey, Annetta, and welcome. Are you ready to get the tea? I am ready. Thank you so much, Amika, for that warm welcome. (laughs) Oh, yes. Well, I am as well because September is such a special month. Why? Because it's National Suicide Prevention Awareness, a special time for each of us to be the one. Be the one to share and spread the word about actions that we can all take to prevent suicide. You know, I think some of the most important things we all can do is be the one to ask after someone in a caring way. And, and be the one to speak and listen and show support without judgment. So to help us all out, we have a very, very, very special guest to spill the tea and give us some tips on suicide prevention, particularly for our youth. And it is, it is none other than the reputable Jonathan Singer. He is our special treat today. So, you know, Dr. Singer is an associate professor in the School of Social Work at Loyola University, Chicago. And he is the founder and host of the award-winning Social Work Podcast. And he has some very, very special interests, but it's everything suicide prevention, of course. And, um, but get this, he most recently served as the former president of the American Association of Suicidology. So he knows what he's talking about. So welcome, Dr. Singer, and thank you for taking the time to be with us. Well, thank you so much. It is such an honor and a pleasure to be here uh, and uh, to, to be able to spill some tea. I love the lemon. That's, oh, that's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> we all need a side of something, right? That's so, exactly right. Tell us, you know... While you're spilling this tea, before you dive in, can you start off telling us a little more about yourself and your areas of interest? Yeah, so I'm a I'm a clinical social worker. I'm a researcher. Uh, I'm an educator, and my focus has really been on broadly. It's been on how we work with families whose narratives have been disrupted, disrupted by some sort of crisis event, and specifically around a suicidal crisis. Uh, I focused a lot on community mental health, um, schools, uh, some in the hospitals. Uh, You know, obviously there's an overlap with substance abuse or substance use, um, uh, psychosis, cyberbullying. But what I really 
work really hard to do is to figure out how all these systems can work together for the betterment of families and their kids rather than fight against each other, uh, leaving the families and the kids to fend for themselves. Oh, it's such powerful work, so powerful. So Dr. Singer, I know that you have a specific interest in youth suicide prevention and knowing that suicide is the second leading cause of death for young people between the age of 10 and 24, are the struggles a lot different for our youth compared to the adults? And also, do these struggles differ by racial and ethnic group? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, you know, when we think about suicidal adults, it's important to remember that most suicidal adults were suicidal kids, um, that this is a real continuum. Um, and, and, and so for some of those folks, the issues have been similar throughout their lives. When we think about kids as a separate age group from adults, what we can see is that there are some very obvious differences. So for example, um, uh, crises related to job and employment are significantly more present in adults than they are in kids. Um, we don't have really good data on on financial uh, circumstances for families when you have kids uh, who've died by suicide, but I suspect there would probably be some overlap in terms of financial well-being. Um, for kids, we also see that there is um, a much stronger likelihood that kids will attempt suicide or die by suicide in a relatively short period of time after one of their peers has died by suicide. And this is what we call uh, suicide diffusion or contagion or a cluster. And that doesn't really happen in adulthood, right? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my 50s and, um, uh, you know, I recently had a colleague die by suicide. Nobody's really worried that any of the other, you know, staff at the School of Social Work are going to kill themselves because this this colleague died by suicide. But if we were 14 and one of my best friends killed himself, there would be a reasonable concern that I or somebody else in my peer group, uh, especially if we'd already been suicidal, might be at increased risk for suicide. Um, and this plays into the the truth that you know kids, especially teenagers, their their developmental task is to figure out how to um, you know forge their identity in in a group context, and so their peers become particularly important to them. And so all of the influences of peers around suicide ideation, around suicidal behaviors are important in a way that developmentally they're less important in adulthood. Now, the way that this ties into uh, race and ethnicity is that, uh, and actually, and I'll, I'll expand that to say, when we think about um, sexual and gender minority youth, uh, when we think about minoritized youth due to race or ethnicity, what we see is that we see uh, this idea of minority stress theory playing in where uh, 
being a group that is minoritized by the majority group confers additional stressors onto the kid, onto their peers, and onto their family and community. And that these stressors can overlap with lack of access to resources that they can uh, use and access in meaningful ways. Um, uh, you know, for kids in schools, um, if you're uh, um, if you're a black kid, uh, black male, and you are experiencing intense emotions that is oftentimes coded as threatening or violent. Um, and so the responses are very different than for a white kid who might be experiencing intense emotions. And those are coded as a cry for help and a need for mental health services. Um, you know, obviously we've, we've seen similar responses uh, on a societal level with the way that policies and uh, criminal, um, uh, sort of the criminal justice system has responded to the opioid epidemic, which has been coded as primarily sort of a rural white problem as opposed to the uh, so-called crack e epidemic, which was characterized as primor primarily um, an inner city and black or African-American problem. And we can see that there are societal responses that are completely different. Um, and so when we think about the differences between uh, suicide risk, suicide prevention um, by race and ethnicity, or any other sort of minoritized category, uh, we can see the uh, the pernicious effects of um, inequitable distribution of resources, of uh, stereotypes that persist around uh, what people are doing and how they're experiencing things at an individual level, and that plays into what happens at uh, at a systems level with schools, or maybe it's child welfare or the criminal legal system, things like that. Now, the last thing that I'll say about this is that it 100% applies to the mental health system, um, particularly when you have uh, when you have folks who are, um, uh, you know, kids of color who are being told the only solution we have to what you're going through is for you to talk with a mental health professional, and the mental health professionals that we're referring you to don't look anything like you. They're not from the neighborhoods you're from. Um, and, but that's all we have to offer. And I think that those are some really um, important things for us to think about. Oh my goodness. Annetta, you really dived in. So Dr. Singer could spill some tea. You pointed out uh, a lot of great aspects that some of us haven't even thought about. But so given all of this, Dr. Singer, we're always looking for tips and best strategies. So as the former president of the American Association of Suicidology, and even given your work with family-based and school interventions, what do you think are the priorities for tackling the suicide crisis in our youth community? Are there specific policies and, and legislation that needs to be in place? So I think that, um, you know, one of the first things that we need to do is we need to remember that um, families are a system, schools are a system, and that they each play a different role. 
schools have the primary focus of providing education and there's implicit and explicit education. Um, but but in a school system. Uh, the staff that are in schools understand any individual kids behaviors within a context that is really hard for anyone else to understand. Um, so for example, if there's a kid who is particularly agitated and you're the school counselor, you might know, well, you know what? Everybody in school is particularly agitated because the football team just lost uh, the state finals and there's just an overall sense of um, upset in students. And so they have a, they, they sort of understand the context, right? They can understand the um, what's the signal and what's the noise. Um, I think that one of the 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 priorities that we should have in terms of addressing uh, youth suicide in schools is a um, providing uh, more mental health resources in schools. And this does a couple of things. One, it says, you know, kids are going to school, um, asking them to access mental health resources outside of schools can be really problematic, especially if the school is a place that kids trust, where there are there are adults that they can trust, they can believe in. And then if they're being told to go to an, uh, a community mental health center where they don't know anybody, where they, you know, uh, th they have no reason to trust that these are going to be helpful services, then there's a barrier there, right? But having more mental health services in schools could be useful. Now, there is this idea of school-based uh, mental health, and that's a little bit different than what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is making sure that there are enough social workers, school counselors, psychologists, things like that, who can be able to identify and respond uh, in an appropriate way to kids who are um, who are struggling either with suicidal thoughts or some of the other relevant risk behaviors. Um, and these can include substance use. They can include, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, being in homes where there's uh, violence, um, uh, all sorts of things. So uh, making sure that we have enough uh, uh, mental health providers. I think that another thing that we have to do is to make sure that we are having affirming content integrated into the school curricula and affirming content. Um, traditionally, we've talked about affirming content in the context of sexual and gender minority youth, but uh, also talking about it in terms of race and ethnicity. Um, so many of the times we have kids in elementary schools that are getting uh, miseducation around uh, the history of uh, genocide uh, with indigenous peoples in uh, what we call the United States today, right? Um, what we have misinformation around, uh, you know, the the presence of, of um, um, laws and institutions that maintain uh, white supremacy. We have, um, uh, and, and as a result, we have curricula that doesn't affirm um, a large percentage of the kids that are in school, not affirming culture, um, not affirming um, uh, uh, belief systems. And one very specific example of this uh, with with uh, um, gender minority youth, right? So kids who are transgender and non-binary is that there's research that shows that um, transgender or uh, non-binary kids who are around adults that use their correct names and pronouns 
are less likely to be suicidal than transgender and non-binary kids who are around adults that don't use their correct pronouns um, and correct names. And and these this seems like a small thing, but it's it's a really important thing. Same thing with policies that um, uh, police, uh, particularly black girls, for their hairstyles. Um, how can you say that we are going to be in a school system that is focused on education and affirming kids when kids are required to uh, cut their hair or change their hairstyle um, to to conform to some sort of normed assumption about what an appropriate hairstyle is? And so these are just examples of some of the policies that, that we really need to be changing, particularly in schools. Um, more broadly, I think one of the big things that we can do is to make sure that there is ongoing support for telehealth services, particularly telemental health services for kids. During the pandemic, we saw that there was an increase in particularly youth access to mental health services, in part because there was an increase in, or there was, they, they suspended a lot of the, the legislative barriers um, and insurance barriers to accessing services over the phone and over webcam. And being able to have that really means that we have um, uh, increased access to mental health services for all sorts of youth. And if it means that you have, uh, uh, let's say a, a youth of color in one town um, and, they, and there are no therapists that look like them uh, in that town, but there are across the state Using telehealth, you can access those services. You can get a therapist that looks like you, that sounds like you, that understands you in a way that the local therapists don't. And that can be a huge boon to addressing um, uh, mental health needs and also being able to create resources that folks can meaningfully uh, um, use. Dr. Singer, you have really provided some great insight today. So if our listeners would like to learn more about suicide prevention and intervention, where can they go to find more information? Well, you know, through um, PsychU, I had the pleasure of uh, talking with, uh, um, you know, Dr. Sherry Mullock, uh, the, the Reverend Dr. Sherry Mullock, um, about suicide in Black Americans. And we have a webinar uh, on that topic. And you know she's she's just amazing, um, and I always learn so much when when I have the opportunity to to present with her. Um, I, I was also on a, a webinar earlier on in the pandemic um, called "For Better or Worse: Bridging the Care Continuum for Mental Health Services in Our New Reality." And although it was really focusing on you know the pandemic, um, more broadly we were talking about issues around telehealth, around access to services, around care, around how to think about things and. And honestly, like telehealth is not going away, right? The need to access services um, in a different way is not going away because one of the things that we've known for years is that there are a lot of barriers to care. And so these are some of the, and we talk about some of the ways that um, these barriers have been dismantled over the pandemic. And as I said, you know, a couple of minutes ago, it's a really important thing for us to maintain the access to these services. Understanding that access to services is not the end-all be-all. I mean, for example, um, you know, most uh, mental health providers are white. And particularly when we think about suicide risk amongst youth, we can see that the uh, uh, 
that youth, so black, African-American youth, uh, American Indian, Alaska Native youth, Hispanic youth, there are, um, uh, and I say Hispanic youth because that's the CDC category, um, there are enormous needs for services and there are uh, not enough providers um, to provide um, sort of racially or ethnically uh, matched services. So in social work, about 21% of clinical social workers um, are black. Um, among psychologists, I think it's about 4%. And, um, and so we see that there is this need to really address um, not only uh, matching folks up with uh, providers uh, who look like them, sound like them, but also additional training for uh, white clinicians to make sure that when they're working with black clients that they can help them be more comfortable about talking with suicide risk. And part of that is what I said in the beginning about making sure that you're not coding intense emotions um, as being something that's aggressive um, or um, uh, you know, uh, something negative, but instead uh, understanding them in the same way that you would for a white client in terms of the need for more um, uh, sort of mental health uh, approaches. You know, Dr. Singer, thank you so much. And we will make sure that our listeners have access to those resources um, that you commented on, suicide in Black Americans, talking about statistics, faith, and contextual competence, as well as the panel discussion that you had for better or worse, bridging the care continuum for mental health services. So thank you so much for spilling the tea. And, you know, honestly, I'm usually the one joking and full of laughs, but this month I have a different type of hype that pep us all up hype and you have pepped me up even more, <laughs> you know, really, because suicide <laughs> awareness and prevention is, it moves me in a sentimental way because we got this, we can do this, we can all unite and take those actions and even some of those tips and strategies that you gave to us in preventing suicide. So thank you so much, Dr. Singer. Mm. Yeah, you're so welcome. It's really an honor and pleasure to talk with you all today. Yes. And to our listeners out there, don't forget to check out the show notes for the link to the Psyche webinar featuring Dr. Singer and the amazing uh, panel discussion that he was a part of. So there you have it. You've heard it for yourself right here on the Psyche Community Podcast. But you don't have to stop here. Definitely check out the show notes for the links to find more resources on today's discussion on PsycU.org. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more hot topics right here on the PsycU Community Podcast, please rate and review us. And please subscribe so you always get the new episode whenever it drops. Also, check out our other social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. So until next time, thank you for listening, everyone, and have a great day.